Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. traveling around a bit in the UK before uh, coming here and in my um, travels one of the things that I learned or encountered is that um, showers don't work exactly the same way here as they do in um, the United States um, meaning that the controls are different for them so uh, you know, I've stayed in many different uh, places and there's a variety of different um, things to pull and turn. And, um, so turn the electricity on, and then um, maybe something for the heat, and something for the volume, um, and a variety of different things. And each time that I was in a different place, it was like some aspect of like trying to figure out how this shower works, you know, as part of the task and. I remember um, in one place I was staying with a friend of mine, and he came up from the shower and said, like, us, oh, it's too bad there's like, no hot water, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went in and, um, you know, sort of just started pushing the buttons, uh, <laughs> like red squiggle ones and this and that, and then I had a very good shower, actually, a lot of hot water. So I came back and told him, and uh, he said, like, well, how did you do that? <laughs> and so then I tried to explain, but really it was a bit of luck that I was pushing um, some different buttons. Um, but based on like what I approximated was the temperature one, and what I approximated was the volume one in some sequence. So the reason I mention this is that there's a way in which, uh, you know, as human beings, we're kind of doing this too. <laughs> like we find ourselves in this circumstance of life and. Uh, approaching, approaching the recipe for well-being, for happiness, for refuge, and pushing the different buttons in ways that we see other people doing or don't. Um, and sometimes we're lucky and we get it, <laughs> and then sometimes it's not. Uh, it's not working properly. So retreat is a really great opportunity to explore and understand uh, how our experience works as human beings, you know, how our world gets constructed. How is it that the world in which there is a sense of happiness or well-being uh, comes about? Uh, and how is it that the world of suffering comes about? And the Buddhist teachings are largely around this um, enterprise from many different directions in a <coughs> variety of different ways. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about this uh, this evening. 
the construction of uh, happiness and where we can find refuge. So there's many different kinds of happiness that are described in the path by the Buddha. And one of them is uh, your basic uh, happiness of sense experience. So it is possible to have a certain kind of happiness from a cup of tea or a beautiful flower, uh, from a hot, hot shower, if you're cold, um, from a beautiful sound, a sight, a smell. The only thing is that all of those things fade and change. So it's not lasting uh, happiness to be found there, but it still is, uh, certainly there's pleasure to be had in this world. So I teach um, often in a retreat center called Spirit Rock in California, uh, Catherine mentioned, and people often at the end of the retreat really like the food that was served there and ask for the recipes uh, for things. So they start to put together a cookbook in the end for people. And one of the cooks there also started a blog, um, and I think it's like uh, how to cook like a Buddha or something like that. But, you know, people often uh, come back and they complain, like, well, I tried to make it at home and I followed your recipe exactly, but it didn't taste the same. <laughs> like, it wasn't as good, so did you leave something out? Uh, and usually we like to say, yes, we left out, like, mindfulness and concentration. <laughs> Balance of mind, right? So it's actually the factors of mind that uh, allow us to be fully present with uh, experience and even to enjoy these very simple sense pleasures in a more full way. So you might have experienced that here on retreat where uh, it's possible to have a cup of tea or uh, see something in nature and really be very present with it in a different way than when the mind is distracted and get a lot of pleasure from very simple things. And still, while we're mucking around in the realm of the sense world, you could say, uh, there's a way in which, on some level that seems subtle at first, but as we tune in, can actually be perceived as fairly uh, painful and gross. There's a way in which we are kind of stressed out seeking sense experience. Uh, of a sort that will be pleasurable to us. So then there's another level of uh, more subtle happiness that's there when this kind of roaming in the sense world on the very gross level starts to settle down as the mind becomes more concentrated. And as the mind becomes more concentrated also, we kind of get out of the weeds of the initial psychological dramas and uh, stuff that usually is spinning around. And then we can experience the sense of contentment, happiness, well-being that comes from a collected heart and mind. 
And the happiness that can come from concentrated mind, uh, samadhi, is actually greater than any happiness that can be found uh, in the sense world. So that's a, maybe a bold assertion to make, uh, but the, the sense of well-being and happiness, even uh, pleasure that's there, that's not dependent on a gross sense experience from meditative happiness can actually outshine uh, greatest sex, chocolate cake, music, uh, movie, sunset, anything. And there can be a great freedom that can come from recognizing that our happiness does not have to be dependent on this ever-changing world of sense experience that's highly unreliable. So if you've had some glimmer of this uh, sense of well-being, sort of meditative happiness, if you will, uh, it's good to recognize this. Actually, to allow yourself to, in some ways, fully inhabit and know this state of well-being. It can be during sitting meditation, uh, this states of concentration can come. <coughs> but it's possible even to have this sense of collectedness of attention that brings well-being uh, while in motion, so while doing a walking meditation. The sense of a unification, <coughs> unification of ourselves, are usually very distracted, disparate, separate, jangly experience of life. So in those moments when you might experience that, let's say in the walking practice, that there's a sense of deep contentment and well-being. I was kind of very helpful and freeing to allow myself to recognize that. Because in that moment, actually, everything that you have, everything that you own, your title, your name, your education, uh, your car, everything could have gone up in smoke. And yet, you are actually experiencing a great sense of well-being that is priceless. So now we're on to something. We're onto something that the cause of happiness is not actually external, but to do with the mind. It have to do with the mind and heart. <coughs> so, but even the sense of concentration and collectedness of mind is conditional in some way. So, among the conditions are. Uh, being on a meditation retreat, helpful. Uh, not having people bug you all the time, also helpful. Being in a place in which there is some amount of calm. And having the conditions in which you can let the mind settle and collect, too. So is that all that we have to offer here, meditative happiness? 
the good news is no, and this is where the insight comes in. That it also is possible then to apply this collected mind and heart to seeing into and understanding, broadly speaking, the way in which our experience as human beings gets constructed. And in this way, we're able to have some deeper insight into the causes of suffering and well-being that can free us whether or not we have a concentrated mind, whether or not we're at Gaia House, and whatever the weather is. So let's explore a little bit about uh, what are some of these things that we can check out to understand. And, you know, described meditation and what we're doing in a variety of different ways. And I'll say that whatever your experience is and however you relate to being on retreat or your practice right now uh, is fine. I'll just suggest uh, some perspectives on it, and if it's helpful, then that's uh, good. But also, if there's a different one that's more helpful, that's also totally good, too. So you can notice in these different moments of happiness and well-being, even in the simplest one that I mentioned, like drinking the cup of tea and really being able to be present with it, there's something that could be uh, considered common across those. And I like to suggest that among those is the absence of uh, me. And this is true in our outside life too. The activities that you find most satisfying are usually those in which you can feel completely unified, uh, connected. Whether that's uh, art or music or athletics or cooking, dancing, For most of us, the activity that we really love is one in which we can completely immerse. And during those moments of being engaged in that, this duality of a sense of self and other in the world and dissolves for a little while. So characteristics of this include losing a sense of time, losing a sense of boundary, and feeling uh, fully unified and one in that activity. So you can notice as you're going around in the meditation center different times in which that sense of me as a separate entity feels strong, and times when it feels either not present or very faint, if you will. Particularly noticeable is the times in which it arises very strongly, very suddenly. And usually those are times in which there is an increase in the tension and suffering that we experience. 
So this arising of an idea of me as some permanent, unique, enduring, and controlling entity is something that it's helpful to keep an eye out for and which I like to suggest is simply an arising in the mental field. So it's actually an illusion of sorts uh, to believe that that is real. That there is a permanent, enduring, controlling entity. (laughs) So a couple of common ones that arise in the retreat center. And um, one of the helpful things about being on retreat is you've really simplified your life down. And so in some ways, the (coughs) antics of the mind become amplified uh, and uh, highlighted. So these are a couple that we talk about in the United States, but I feel like it's likely that they also show up here. So one is that you can find yourself in some creation of self and other that arises uh, with someone here on this silent retreat who you don't know, but who for some reason has started to bug you in some way. So uh, the shorthand for this we call is the Vipassana Vendetta. (laughs) So this is when uh, you don't know this person whatsoever, but Maybe they sit in the seat you wanted to sit in for breakfast one time. Or they're uh, walking a little too slowly out of the hall for you. And then before that, you were just lifting, moving, placing. But then suddenly there arises this sense of uh, self and other, like me and this entity. And then we might recognize them, and then the next time we see them, we have already imbued them with some uh, projection uh, of negativity. So it's like they're always in the place where I want to do walking meditation or I don't like the way that they put their dishes in the dish bin or, you know, the the mind like amplifies this out and creates an enemy uh, in a way that we could completely fall into, believe in, get sucked into and suffer within. Or, which can be somewhat instructive in understanding the way in which this moment of self and other gets created and suffering arises. So the second category is a kind of corollary to that, and this is the Vipassana romance. Mm -hmm. So this is where some (laughs) hapless individual Uh, seems for some reason to have um, struck your fancy and you like how they seem to sit very well you like their socks (laughs) you like their um, dignified bearing as they go through the lunch line So then the mind projects out that uh, this is the one for you. You will uh, imagine talking to them at the end of retreat and how 
swimmingly we'll get along and uh, then we'll go on to uh, exchange information and meet after the retreat. Uh, you'll have some very mindful dates and then <laughs> in the end uh, move into your um, beautiful, tastefully decorated uh, apartment. <laughs> and uh, you'll have small black mats for sitting <laughs> and we'll live uh, happily ever after. <laughs> so meanwhile, it's helpful to recognize you do not know the first thing about this person. <laughs> and in both these cases, you're making it all up. <laughs> so here again, this uh, sense of self and other arises. You know, like, just totally habitually, uh, you know, seemingly randomly, but there's different conditionality around why or how these things come about. But if we're not able to be mindful, be attentive to each of these different arisings, uh, once again, uh, we believe them. And we can see in each of these cases how we create a world. And this is happening so often, right? Like all the time. There's some experience we have (coughs) in the realm of the senses, and then there's a perception that comes into being because of this. We proliferate around this with uh, thoughts, and a story gets created of myself, of the other, uh, and it can go on for a long time it can become not just a, a sort of brief thing but it can become a whole feature length uh, film <laughs> so one of the really helpful things to recognize is the way in which um, it's, it's all being made up you know, it's all constructed and very interesting is to notice the moments in which it dissolves in which somehow for some reason it's almost like uh, you know the drain plug is pulled and it just swirls away like that. It's gone. So one of my um, favorite stories about this is that there's someone who goes to a cave and they paint a picture of a tiger, and then they look at it and they go, "Ah, tiger!" and they run out of the cave. They're afraid. <laughs> So, uh, it's funny because, like, where was the tiger? There's no tiger. They made up the tiger. (laughs) But you laugh, but think about how often this happens when you're sitting here. You're just sitting here breathing and no one is bothering you. And a thought arises, and then suddenly we're engaged in this constructed world, including all of the emotions related to that, as if it's actually happening. So it's really the same thing, you know, it's like the tiger gets constructed. We don't see it for just what it is, a painting, an image. And would that it were just one static image, but usually we're wandering about through these nested caves of moving pictures. And this is a delusion. 
So in the chant that uh, Catherine brought this morning is described some aspects of our experience that the Buddha pointed to as particularly helpful to understand, to see into for uh, gaining this kind of uh, insight that can bring the deepest freedom, well-being, and happiness. And it's a schema called the five aggregates, which is uh, describing these particular dimensions of our uh, experience that it's helpful to see through, and particularly to see as, uh, as the chant says, as uh, impermanent, as arising and passing away, uh, as insubstantial and unreliable, and as not ourselves. And the thrust of these teachings is really to help us understand the way in which experience gets constructed. So in this way, it really is about kind of like, um, you know, how does the shower operate? Right? So my primary interest in those situations is like, how do I take a shower? <laughs> like it's not actually about the entirety of the plumbing or who made it or... even that many specifics. You have a very clear purpose in those moments in this uh, little shower room with these dials, which is uh, taking a good hot shower, like now. So then uh, I limit my exploration to the things that will help that to happen. And if I spend a lot of time kind of like trying to unearth the piping or, you know, various other aspects of where was this shower made or uh, where did the parts come from, it wouldn't help me with the main purpose, uh, which is to take a shower. So similarly, this kind of exploration, the main purpose is to help us understand the way in which uh, experience, our human experience gets created, and particularly this illusion of me as this abiding entity that I need to defend, uh, that I need to protect, uh, and that is lasting in some way. So we've explored several of these uh, through the course of the retreat about uh, exploring the experience of the form and the body and knowing that in different ways as impermanent this comprises similar elements to the earth in that way the body being like nature also as being not within our control and in their arising and passing away uh, as we perceive them, also being ultimately unreliable. Today we talked about this feeling tone, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral dimension. And that too is a helpful one to tune into 
as I said, of kind of cracking the code of that which we usually are operating under. So we're usually under the spell of this seeking pleasant experience and running away from the unpleasant experience. So starting to tune into that and noticing the habitual reactivity can bring a lot of uh, freedom as well. There's this one that um, Catherine was speaking about, about sankharas, which for me is one of the hardest ones to uh, translate and even understand. And in the chat sheet, it was listed as um, thinking, which she said she didn't like the translation of. And uh, I think an alternate translation she gave was uh, karmic formations. Karmic formations. So I want to share also some other translations that have been um, helpful to me. Uh, because this particular one, it's helpful to kind of come at from many different angles. So, uh, volitions is one. Uh, another one that's sometimes translated as concoctions. But that's a bit vague, too. Uh, impulses or fabrications, or even fabricators. The one that's the, been the most helpful to me is a translation as drives. And particularly in this case, the drive that is about the existence of, the protection of, and the knowledge of ourself. And once you start to look at them, you can see that this kind of drive is there an awful lot of the time, in subtle and in huge ways. So these kinds of drives are habitual, and they're conditioned, and they both come from some view of ourselves as existing, and they also kind of reinforce that when they're not seen through. So there's a way in which it may seem like we're objectively approaching the world and experiencing it through the senses, but I like to suggest that there's several different ways in which it's constantly being mediated, whether we know that or not. So there's a way in which, even as we experience the world through our senses, there's some underlying way in which we are continually seeking information and perceiving the world in a way that reinforces our ideas about ourselves as existing. And even that reinforces our ideas specifically about who we want to be. This becomes most apparent when this gets disrupted. So when something arises that is not in accordance with our idea of who we want to be, either in our own mind or seemingly from someone else. So 
So also there's a way in which even our perception itself uh, is constructed. So this is another one of the factors of these aggregates, is the, the factor of perception itself. And this is an aspect of recognizing something. We were talking about this in um, one of the groups today, uh, that there's a way in which we assume that the world that we perceive is exactly uh, as it is. But actually, uh, many of our fellow inhabitants of the planet perceive the world very differently. So, uh, I believe that dogs, for example, uh, see the world in, uh, not in color in the same way that we do. And cats uh, have some amount of like, color blindness. I think like red and green are perceived as the same. Also, for some animals, you know, the sense of smell is incredibly strong. And they're perceiving a lot of things in the environment that we totally miss. Some animals perceive dimensions of light uh, or of sound also that are not within the spectrum that our organs can perceive. So, which is true? Our version of the world or the sheep's? Of course, we think it's ours, but <laughs> maybe each of them is just constructed in some way due to the conditions of the organs that we have, the mental factors of perception, and then also these maps that we have of the mind. So the last one in this uh, five aggregates is about uh, consciousness, and particularly sense consciousness. So the uh, vinyana says that consciousness that arises at the same time as an object of experience and then passes away. And as meditators, particularly with the technique of vipassana, where often focusing on noticing objects of experience as not me, uh, being able to see them come and go. So the experience of the body, the experience of sound, smells, tastes. Then we might get to this level of perception, noticing uh, perception and misperception. Oftentimes the hardest one to get free from is the idea that there is a me who is knowing all this. <coughs> so even though we can't find this one, there is actually a permanent, unique, enduring entity that is controlling behind awareness itself. So for this one, it takes a subtle investigation to try to find that one. 
and to recognize that the knowing itself is just as it is, minus any personal idea of self in there that can be found. So Ajahn Mahabua, who is one of the Thai forest masters, says, whenever there is a center in the knowing, there is dukkha. And this is really the main purpose of this investigation. Right? And it is something that seems as uh, esoteric as trying to find the self in knowing. Is because as long as there is some identification with the knower, there's something that needs to be protected or uh, that can be harmed. So if uh, all of this seemed confusing to you and uh, you're like, oh, I was just trying to like sit here and breathe. <laughs> That's also okay. <laughs> so, but if any of this is interesting to you, then yeah, it's areas in which we can bring investigation. We can <coughs> apply the collectedness of attention that we have to seeing through the ways in which the world is constructed and particularly in which this idea of me gets constructed. And even if, if tuning into that sense of the arising of self, when it's there and when it fades away, and what that feels like energetically in the arising and the fading, uh, even as simple as that can be a very... Uh, fruitful and interesting exercise. So in the end of the day, um, mostly I have been able to take showers uh, successfully. And I haven't totally cracked the one here in Gaia House. And uh, the next one I've moved on to is actually trying to get the heater to work. which I couldn't totally do, but also uh, I know I can ask for help. <laughs> so similarly, it's a good opportunity here on retreat. You, know, you have the opportunity to be kind of in a lab in which you are both the uh, lab animal and the equipment and the scientist all together. And again, if that perspective is um, interesting to you, then that's great. But if really uh, you feel more connected to a sense of metta and uh, just resting with experience, that's also like totally fine too. And it's a good opportunity as we continue here um, that you've had a good momentum of practice, of collectiveness, of attention. So there's also a way in which, as much as I've described all these elements that you can investigate, you can have a lot of faith that you have done sincere efforts so far, and whether you know it or not, your practice is bearing fruit. 
And as I mentioned to some people here, you're kind of, um, you're like in the Dharma cooker. So then I think of each of these mats as like a little uh, cooking coil. And you come in, you sit on it, and it like starts to cook you there. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is, even cooking when you're walking, and uh, even in bed when you sleep, the cooking continues here in the environment. So just gently continue your practice. Uh, Bringing kindness, bringing uh, openness of attention and bringing this uh, curiosity. And you can trust that uh, taking refuge in the Dhamma in this way will bear fruit for you that will be beneficial for yourself and for everyone that you will meet for the rest of your life. So thank you for your attention. I can just rest for a minute. May our practice bring the deepest levels of liberation and understanding for our own benefit and the benefit of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.